Good evening, everyone. It is uh, 7 o'clock right on the dot, so we're going to go ahead and get started without further ado. My name is Matt Neen, and I'm on staff with the North Carolina Study Center here at UNC. And it is my honor and privilege to welcome you uh, to Chapel Hill during Snowpocalypse 2020 <laughs> to, uh, to hear James K. Smith speak. So thank you uh, so much for all the sacrifices and the roads that were braved uh, for everyone to be here tonight. I thought it might be appropriate to open up tonight just with a brief story. Uh, the year is 2014, and it's mid-February on a night much like tonight. Duke basketball is ranked number four in the country, one of the best teams that year, and is the heavy favorite going against a lower-ranked UNC squad that night in Chapel Hill. Campus is excited, students are lined up for hours to get into the Dean Dome, the energy is building, and then at the last minute, conveniently, uh, Duke somehow was not able to get the bus eight miles down the road from Cambridge uh over to UNC. They released a statement that night. I'd like to read that statement. This is, this is official. Quote, Duke's bus is not able to get to their campus to pick up the team in time in order to be able to make the trip to Chapel Hill so we can't play this evening, unfortunately, end quote. <laughs> I share that to say, by virtue of being here tonight, you are superior to Duke. <laughs> so give yourself a round of applause. Well done. Well done. Uh, I'd like to also welcome uh, all of our adult guests and uh, community members, alumni, who have uh, you know, given up other opportunities to be here tonight. Thank you for being with us. Also, big thanks to all the different partner ministries uh, that have helped make tonight possible. Uh, among them, College Collective, RUF, InterVarsity, InterVarsity grad and faculty, um, as well as um, several other ministries. I know I'm not being exhaustive here, but thank you to all the ministries that uh, helped to publicize and to uh, share this opportunity to be here tonight. A brief word about format. Uh, I'm gonna hand over the mic here in just a minute to James K.A. Smith, our guest speaker. Uh, and he's going to share with us for a little while, and then we're going to have time at the end for audience Q&A. Um, it's going to be a little tricky because this venue only has one microphone, uh, so we're going to leave that up here with Jamie. So if you have a question, uh, I'll be the one, I'll help Jamie call on folks, and then uh, just be as loud as you can in sharing your question. Uh, try to be audible uh, for the rest of the room. All right, without further ado, uh, I'd like to introduce our speaker for tonight, James K.A. Smith. James K. Smith is professor of philosophy at Calvin College, or Calvin University, I believe now, sorry, Calvin University, where he holds the Gary and Henrietta Biker Chair in Applied Reform Theology and Worldview. Trained as a philosopher with a focus on contemporary French thought, Smith has expanded on that scholarly platform to become an engaged public intellectual and cultural critic. An award-winning author and widely traveled speaker, he is engaged as a thought leader with a unique gift of translation building bridges between the academy, society, and the church. I think we'll see that gift of translation uh, in action tonight as we talk about Augustine you know, from the 400s, but also today. The author of a number of influential books, Smith also regularly writes for, ma for magazines and newspapers, such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Slate, First Things, Christianity News Today, Books and Culture, and the Hedgehog Review. He also serves as editor-in-chief of Image Journal. He and his wife, Deanna, who's here with us tonight, thank you, Deanna, uh, for being here. Uh, he and his wife, Deanna, are elementary school sweethearts. 
I love that. That's, that's probably my favorite, favorite fact on the Bible. Uh, and they have four adult children. They're natives of Stratford, Ontario, so Canadian, so it snows nothing to, to uh, Dr. Smith. Natives of Stratford, Ontario, they lived in Philadelphia and Los Angeles before settling in the Heritage Hill neighborhood of Grand Rapids, Michigan. They are committed urban dwellers who enjoy gardening, travel, wine with friends, and curling up on the couch with their multi-poo Kirby. <laughs> Another great fact. Without further ado, uh, I introduce to you Dr. James K. Smith. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, good evening, everyone. It's really, uh, I'm so honored that you would brave this Canadian winter uh, <laughs> to be here tonight. We literally book things outside of Michigan in February to get away from this, but nonetheless, uh, here we are. Uh, I, and I, I want to make sure this is close to me because I'm recovering from an illness and I, I feel like my voice might not last quite as much. Can you all hear me all right? Yeah. I, I've been in North Carolina for like 24 hours and say y'all <laughs> So, um, <clears throat> my project, if you will, is to show that an ancient saint like Augustine is actually a perennial companion for Christians. And that in many ways, uh, somebody who lives a world and millennia away uh, has a lot to teach us living in North America or anywhere in the world, really, in the 21st century if we're trying to live uh, lives of faith. And so, um, for those of you who aren't familiar, I, I, I can't believe you all don't spend every waking moment thinking about St. Augustine, but in case this is a new name to you or a new figure or, or at least vague figure for you, just uh, the briefest of bios. So St. Augustine, excuse me, is one of the great doctors of the church who lived in the late 300s and early 400s in uh, North Africa, what would be today Algeria. Um, he uh, was the son of a pagan Roman father and an African Christian mother, um, and uh, basically spent the first 30 years of his life running away from God, uh, only to have God chase him down and find him anyway and then went on to become one of the great, um, as I say, doctors of the church. It's sort of Jesus, Paul, Augustine is, is the way that goes. And, um, but one of, one of his most famous works is called The Confessions. Has anybody ever heard of or read The Confessions? So The Confessions is one of the great spiritual um, classics of Western Christianity. And uh, is, is a, by the way, still probably the best gateway drug to Augustine. And uh, what I want to do tonight is, I, I think Augustine is the first great existentialist. That is, I think he's much more of our contemporary than you would ever guess if I told you, I want to introduce you to somebody from the late 300s. Uh, what always intrigues me is how much Augustine has read our mail and knows us sort of from the inside. And so what I want to do is I want to tackle a topic tonight then with Augustine's help, ambition. And I think this is um, maybe especially a relevant theme at a place like Chapel Hill in the Research Triangle. Um, and uh, whenever Augustine wants to sort of investigate a human phenomenon like ambition, 
The question always begins with, what do you want? What do you want? And let me say, let's say our working question for the evening. If we want to think hard with Augustine about the nature of ambition, here's the question. What do you want when you want to lead? What do you want when you want to excel? What do you want when you want to win? Now, I want us to tackle the dynamics of aspiration and ambition tonight, not in order to demonize it, but in order to understand it, to diagnose when those ambitions might eat us alive, perhaps especially, by the way, when they are holy and pious. But the point is actually to glimpse what we're really looking for and hear the word of grace on the other side of it. Now, Ambition is a many-splendored yet much maligned thing. That is, your take depends on what demons you're trying to exercise. So if you're surrounded by prideful, power-hungry egomaniacs who are bent on making a name for themselves through babelian endeavors, well then, of course, ambition looks ugly and monstrous and domineering. I don't know if anybody's been watching HBO's Succession, but it's like a great parable of the monstrosity of ambition. But listen, if you're surrounded by placid, passive, go-with-the-flow, aw-shucks folk who are leaving unused gifts on the table and failing to respond to their calling, then actually ambition looks like faithfulness. Sometimes, yes, ambition can look ugly. Sometimes the critique of ambition is even uglier. Just ask yourselves what's going on whenever, any, some, whenever some white guy uses the word uppity. That's a coded language about who is allowed to aspire. So ambition isn't any single thing. It can't simply be celebrated and it can't simply be demonized. If you, if you keep walking around this phenomenon of ambition, I, and I guess I think one of the virtues of thinking carefully about any phenomenon is actually realizing how messy and complicated it is. And if you keep walking around this phenomenon of ambition, I think you'll start to note two important features. The first is, the opposite of ambition is not humility, okay? The opposite of ambition is not humility. The opposite of ambition is sloth. It's passivity. It's timidity. It's complacency. We sometimes like to comfort ourselves by imagining that the ambitious are prideful and arrogant. So those of us who never risk, who never aspire, who never launch out into the deep, get to wear the moralizing mantle of humility. But this imagining is often really just thin cover for a lack of courage and sometimes even laziness. Playing it safe isn't humble. Second, when you look at ambition, it is the telos of ambition that distinguishes good from bad. Um, 
Telos, uh, the Greek word for goal or end, okay? So what distinguishes good ambition from bad ambition is part of what we're thinking about tonight. And what distinguishes it is not the nature of ambition per se, it's what it's aimed at. Separating faithful ambition from self-serving aggrandizement. See, one of the things that will intrigue me about Augustine's story is he never stopped being ambitious. What changed was the target, the goal, the how of his striving. What do I love when I long for achievement? That is the Augustinian question. Now, interestingly, if you, if you, if you sort of dive down into Augustine's story, one, one theme, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but one theme that's interesting is how much Augustine's ambition started as something that was imposed on him by his parents. I don't know if this sounds at all familiar to anybody <laughs> in law school right now. Um, but there's, there's this sense in which Augustine's mother, Monica, who you've heard of from Santa Monica, the city named after her, uh, uh, Monica was kind of the original tiger mom and had very, very high expectations for what Augustine was supposed to accomplish. And in many ways, Augustine got set on this ambitious path because of imposed ambition that is the parents brought to him. But by the time he gets to his 20s, Augustine owns this ambition for himself. And when later in midlife, he's looking back in the confessions and he's looking at this period in his life, he says this, I wanted to distinguish myself as an orator. So he went on to become a rhetor, a kind of, it's a little bit like a combination between being a lawyer and a speechwriter sort of role. He says, I wanted to distinguish myself as an orator for a damnable and conceited purpose namely delight in human vanity. In his 20s, the chase, this ambition is all his. As a teacher of the arts they call liberal, he says, he was really after something else. We pursued the empty glory of popularity, ambitious for the applause of the audience at the theater when entering for verse competitions to win a garland of mere grass. You did, it, basically, it was the debate team that got all the dates uh, at the University of Carthage, it sounds like. <laughs> NCA Final Four debate team. What are we looking for in our ambition? That's the Augustinian question that he wants all of us to ask. What are we looking for in our ambition? What do we hope to find at the end of our aspirations? In Augustine's experience, the answer is complicated, and I think that's our experience too. There are a bundle of hopes and hungers that are bound up with our ambitions. But so often I think they boil down to a twin desire, to win and to be noticed doing it. The twin desire for domination and attention, to win the crown and to be watched doing it. Augustine's map of this particular terrain of the hungry heart is as useful as ever because so little has changed. When Augustine reflects on ambition, he's really delving into the dynamics of fame. Could anything be more contemporary? We live in an age where everybody's famous. We've traded the hope of immortality for a shot at going viral. The question is, what do we want when we want attention? So you might not think of yourself as particularly ambitious, <coughs> But maybe the form of the question for all of us could be more intensely, what do we want when we want attention? 
What are we hoping for when we aspire to win this game of being noticed? For Augustine, the only way to get to the root of this desire is to understand it as a spiritual craving. That's why we can actually only ever truly understand disordered ambition if we read it as a kind of idolatry. If our ambition becomes a roadblock to peace, an inhibitor that robs us of the rest and joy that we're looking for, well, that's because we've substituted something for an end for which we've been made. See, the, the point of discussing ambition in terms of idolatry isn't denunciation. I, I, I don't invoke the term idolatry just to be sort of like, you idolatry. It's not a, it's not a, a judgy thing. It's not denunciatory, it's diagnostic. Our idolatries are less conscious decisions to believe something false and more like learned dispositions to hope in what will disappoint. See, our idolatries are not intellectual. They are affective. They are instances of disordered love and devotion. In that sense, our idolatry is caught much more than it's taught. We practice our way into our idolatries. We absorb them from the water in which we swim. Existentially, then, see, the problem with idolatry is that it's an exercise in futility. It's a penchant that ends in profound dissatisfaction and unhappiness. Idolatry, we might simply say, doesn't work which is precisely why it creates these restless hearts. In idolatry, Augustine would say, we are enjoying what we are supposed to be just using. Or another way of putting it is, we are treating as ultimate what's really just penultimate, secondary. We're heaping infinite, immortal expectations on created things that are going to pass away. We, we are settling on some aspect of creation as if it could satisfy the way only the creator could. See, Augustine describes this using the metaphor of a journey. He says, disordered love is like falling in love with a boat rather than the destination. Right? You, get, you, get on, you, you get in this boat and you say, well, the reason I'm getting in this boat is because I'm trying to get to the other shore. And then you get in the boat and you're like, this is a nice boat. This is a great, there's like a bowling alley. And there's, there's a bar in the middle of the pool. Uh, and there's like a movie theater. This is like a fantastic, I don't ever want to get out of the boat. And you forget, well, yeah, the boat's great, but the point was to get you there. And the problem is that the boat's not going to last forever. And it is going to start to feel claustrophobic and your heart is built for that other shore. So when our ambition settles, as it were, for merely attention and domination, when, when we imagine that our goal is to be noticed or to win, we're actually lowering our sights. We're aiming low. The arc of ambition now is just hugging the earth, and we expect to find fulfillment from people looking at us, from beating everybody else in the competition for attention. Okay, what happens when they turn away? 
What happens after you get the grass garland, the medal, the scholarship, the promotion? How many likes is enough? How many followers will make you feel valued? Some of you are maybe still just a little too young to know that this is coming. <laughs> but what Augustine speaks to is, well, I'm, I'm stealing my own thunder, hang on. <laughs> Friends, what if we're wired not to be liked, but to be loved? And not by the adulation of many, but by the love of one. Could that explain why all the other attention is never enough? Or why a kind of postpartum depression sets in after every win? Every time you make it to the top of what you thought was the mountain of achievement, why does winning still leave us so restless? See, interestingly, it was ambition that brought Augustine to Milan. Uh, I, so I have to tell you this little bit of, um, I will always tell you more about Augustine than you want to know. But so, so when Augustine, Augustine was kind of raised in the provinces of North Africa, made his way to uh, the UNC of the North African province at the University of Carthage, graduates from the University of Carthage, and then finally lands what he thinks is the dream job in Rome. When he gets to Rome, however, he realizes, oh, at this time, by the way, in the late 300s, the Roman emperor, his seat was no longer based in Rome, it was based in Milan. So you, you think, oh man, if I could just get to Rome, I'm like in the center of power. And then you get to Rome, you're like, where is the emperor? The emperor's not even here. Oh no, he's in Milan. Oh, well I wanna get to Milan. And so Augustine gets the job offer from the emperor in Milan. So he keeps climbing the ladder. This is all an experience that, that, that uh, you're going to have. He climbs the ladder, he makes it to Milan. It was ambition that drew him to Milan. Interestingly, what Augustine tells us in book seven of his Confessions, it was his success that unsettled him. It was attainment that undid him. Augustine's Milan now, you realize, is not so different from contemporary or London or New York or DC for that matter. These cities of our ambition are all perennial. Augustine comes to Milan with that sort of ambition. He's, this is what he says, I aspire to honors, money, marriage. Pretty perennial aspirations. And you laughed at me, he says to God. In those ambitions, I suffered the bitterest difficulties that was by your mercy. Now I want you to hear, the difficulty didn't stem from failure. The difficulty stemmed from success. He wasn't unhappy because he didn't make it. He was unhappy where he made it. And he was becoming less and less adept at pretending otherwise. So he tells us in book eight of, of, of his confessions, he's basically achieved his dream and is profoundly dissatisfied and restless and unhappy. And at that time, a friend from Africa comes and visits him, and he tells him the story of some other people who worked in the imperial court, who basically had the same sort of power-hungry climb that Augustine did. And he tells them this story 
of this episode where these other friends of the emperor are out sort of outside the city walls and they have this little exploration where they run into a community of monks, of hermits. Not hermit crabs, you know what I mean, like <laughs> priests and, and, and ascetics. And they, in, this, in their cabin, they find this book about St. Anthony, which is about somebody who sort of abandoned everything to pursue Christ. And this is, this is the episode that then the friend recounts to Augustine. Suddenly he was filled with holy love and sobering shame. Angry with himself, he turned his eyes on his friend and he said to him, tell me, I beg of you, what do we hope to achieve with all our labors? What is our aim in life? What is the motive of our service to the state? Can we hope for any higher office in the palace than to be friends of the emperor? And in that position, what is not fragile and full of dangers? How many hazards must one risk to attain a position of even greater danger? And when will we arrive there? Whereas, if I wish to become God's friend, in an instant, I may become that now. What is our aim in life? <laughs> That's the great Seinfeld question, actually. I don't know if you remember that episode. You're too young to remember that. There's, a there's one Seinfeld episode where there was one brief glimpse of existential possibility, and then it was submerged forever. What are we doing with our lives? What are we aiming for when we aim our lives at some aspiration? See, friends, the question isn't whether we aim our lives. Our existence is like an arrow on a taut string. It's going to be sent somewhere. It's not a matter of quelling ambition or of settling. That's not what we're talking about. As if that were somehow more virtuous. The alternative to disordered ambition that ultimately disappoints is not some holy lethargy or pious passivity. It's recalibrated ambition that aspires for different ends and does so for different reasons. What is the arc of a life whose aspiration is to be a friend of God. What, what difference would that make? Well, the young striver already senses one difference. This is the only ambition that comes with security, with a rest from the anxiety of every other ambition, because all other ambitions are fragile and fraught. If your ambition really boils down to getting the attention of others, here's the bad news. The attention of others is fickle. Domination of others is always temporary. You cannot win forever. Attainment is a goddess who quickly turns a cold shoulder. To aspire to friendship with God, however, is an ambition for something you could never lose. And I want you to hear what this is. It's to get the attention from someone who sees you and knows you and will never, ever stop loving you. It, it is the exact opposite of fickle human attention, which is so temporal and temperamental. God's attention, and, and I don't know who needs to hear this, but I'm dead serious when I say somebody needs to hear this. God's attention is not predicated on your performance. God's attention to you 
is not predicated on your performance. You don't have to catch God's notice with your display. He's not a father that you have to sort of shock in order to jar his attention away from the game, crying, look at me, look at me. Bruce Springsteen once said, no, T-Bone Burnett told Bruce Springsteen once, rock music was all an example of young men saying, Daddy, look at me, look at me, look at me. You don't have to do that with God. God's attention, God's attention, unlike ours, is a place where you can find rest. It's where Augustine says in a later sermon, you can kind of crawl into your father's lap. You don't have to be worried about getting attention from anyone else. You can rest. At the end of his very moving memoir, Open, the tennis great Andre Agassi recalls a scene before his last professional match at the 2006 US Open. I don't know if you, many of you won't remember Andre Agassi now, but Agassi was, was a flamboyant uh, uh, star in the 80s and early 90s. The, and by the way, his memoir, Open, is one of the great sports memoirs ever. And uh, uh, one of the things that we learn in the memoir is Andre Agassi hated tennis. Andre Agassi hated tennis. It was all about what his dad expected. So this is the very end of his career, and he recounts this story. The story has been one of imposed ambition, and now on the cusp of his retirement, this scene. I'm hobbling through the lobby of the Four Seasons the next morning when a man steps out of the shadows. He grabs my arm. Quint, he says. What? It's my father, or a ghost of my father. He looks ashen. He looks as if he hasn't slept in weeks. Pops, what are you talking about? Just quit. Go home. You did it. It's over. Our, our culture of ambition has only two speeds. Win or quit. Win or quit. But perhaps our ambition to win is a hunger to be noticed. Maybe even a lifelong, unarticulated hunger to be noticed by a father and to hear him say, well done. You did it. But that's not why he loves you. You don't have to win, but you also don't have to quit. You only have to quit performing. Do you see the difference? You only have to quit imagining that love is earned by your performance. You can rest, but you don't have to quit. You just need to change why you play. Resting in the Father can release you to then aspire to use all your gifts out of gratitude, caught up in God's mission for the world. But of course, you can't change your game overnight. And this is where I, I want to speak to us. Uh, uh, um, one of the great gifts, I think, of an Augustinian spirituality, if you will, is what I call his spiritual realism. That is, I think Augustine is very honest about how difficult the Christian life is. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, when you become a Christian, all these things are solved. Far from it. In, and in this respect, in, with regard to ambition, what we should say is, even if I know <laughs> that I can rest in my father's lap 
and I don't have to perform, that doesn't mean I haven't created habits of still living that way. The habits of attention-seeking domination have deep roots. And often our attempts to weed them out, even with the grace of the Spirit, don't seem to pull them up. They keep sprouting. One of the things I most love Augustine for is his honesty about the, his continued struggles with ambition and the unique pride that feeds off of being noticed and garnering praise. The shadow side of ambition is a constant companion of even reordered aspiration in this mortal life. That's why the turn in book 10 of his confessions, uh, um, I know you're all going home to read the confessions tonight, because I mean, like, what else are you going to do? <laughs> Books one to nine of the confessions are Augustine recounting his past life. It's basically his testimony, this rich, existential, philosophical testimony of, of where he was and why he was looking for love in all the wrong places and how he got to where he is. But book 10 of the confessions is now Augustine in his 40s as a bishop in North Africa being honest with us about his continued struggles in the Christian life. It's like a, a live snapshot of where he's at with God in the present. And one of the things I so appreciate about here is that here's Augustine the bishop confessing to his continued struggles and, temp and temptations. His love is still prone to fall for fool's gold. His aim is still unsteady as he finds himself settling for earthbound targets. Meditating on John's invunction, injunction sorry, well, to avoid worldly loves. As some of you will know, 1 John 2, 15, 16, uh, do not love the world nor the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And then there's various translations in the third. The boastful pride of life is one of them. Uh, um, in Augustine's Latin Vulgate, that third one was called ambitio seculum, secular ambition. So the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and secular ambition. Those are the three great categories of temptations. And as Augustine's looking at his life, he says, uh, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, not a problem for me. I'm like, wow, okay, congratulations. Uh, somebody thinks a little highly of so. But anyway, he, he, he's like, no, that's, you know, basically God has rooted that out of me. But what, what's interesting then is he comes to the third and he says, Secular ambition, that is still a struggle for me, as a bishop. He says, here's how he puts it. I'm still prone to fall for this temptation, he says, because the wish to be feared or loved by people for no reason other than the joy derived from such power, which he now realizes is no joy at all. It's a wretched life. It's the sort of life that hollows you out, sucking every ounce of your energy to the surface to maintain the veneer that captures attention. Indeed, we're prone in this idolatry to make ourselves the idols. He says this way, it becomes our pleasure to be loved and feared, not for your sake, but instead of you. Let me, let me read that one more time. What's going on in this dynamic? It becomes our pleasure to be loved and feared, not for your sake, but instead of you. We make ourselves little gods, even while falling prey to the lie that the attention of others will make us happy. 
If the Christian is still prone to this, how much more the priest or the pastor, like Augustine, whose role demands a kind of publicity, a role that requires him or her to be seen and heard and to exercise influence. But Augustine isn't willing to give himself the easy out of simply excusing himself from leadership in order to avoid this temptation, as if the way to avoid the shadow side of ambition was to eschew excellence or the power that comes from public influence. Do you know what I mean? In other words, what Augustine says is, look, I'm called to be a bishop. I'm called to be a Christian who has this public role to play. I'm called to be a leader. And if I do my work well, I'm going to be praised, adored, appreciated, complimented. And the problem is that I'm a sucker for that. And that feeds right into this ego machine so that now I'm doing it because I want to get that. And, and since that's me making an idol out of myself, what do I do? Well, Augustine says, I guess theoretically one possibility is I could just suck at what I do. <laughs> and therefore I would never ever receive praise or adoration or compliments. Do you know what I mean? Like just be bad at your public calling and vocation. Don't be excellent. And you will be safe from living for the praise of men. And Augustine says, well, obviously that doesn't sound like an option. He says, if we hold certain offices in human society, it's necessary for us to be loved and feared by people. Abandoning the office to avoid the temptation is its own sin of irresponsibility, a Jonah-like evasion of the call on one's life. The trick, Augustine points out, is to aspire to one's office and aspire to excellence in that office without letting praise for your excellence be the overriding goal of your ambition. So then this is his prayer. And I, I think it's a pretty good prayer to like tape on your laptop. Be our glory. Let it be for your sake that we are loved. Be our glory. Let it be for your sake that we are loved. If our excellence in the pursuit of God's call on our lives, whatever that vocation might be, if that engenders the proverbial, quote, praise of men, let us learn to receive even that as a gift. This is what Augustine said. If admiration is the usual and proper accompaniment of a good life and good actions, we ought not to renounce it any more than the good life which it accompanies. It sounds silly to say, but Augustine says, one way to think about this dance, this, this walking this tightrope of faithful ambition is, comes down to the practicality of, do you know how to receive a compliment? Which, isn't, which doesn't mean, by the way, rejecting it. What does it look like to be able to say, by God's grace, I am pursuing excellence, and to receive recognition for achieving excellence, without letting that become the reason that I'm pursuing excellence. See, Augustine's spiritual realism is enacted here. The esteemed bishop is admitting that he's still a sucker for praise and adoration. He can't always be confident that he's doing the right thing for the right reason. Or to put it differently, he's quite confident that he's often doing things for both sorts of reasons at the same time. If you ask Augustine, are you doing this for God or your own vanity? Do you know what Augustine's answer is? Yes. 
Does that feel liberating to you? See, I think, I think we think somewhere there's supposed to be this possibility of achieving purity. But at the heart of Augustinian spirituality is actually relinquishing the illusion of, of imagining that anybody's achieving that kind of purity. We don't achieve purity, we achieve confession. It's very, very different. Purity is actually susceptible to its own story of accomplishment and self-congratulation. Confession is grace all the way down. Are you doing this for God or yourself? Yes. That's grace. To recognize that is its own kind of grace. Indeed, you can feel him constantly asking himself. Think of it this way. So remember, I said Augustine wrote this book called The Confessions, which is like, some people describe it as the first memoir in the West. I think that's a complicated claim, but at the very least, it's, it's basically this very, very public Christian figure writing a story of all of his past sins and publishing it. And it's about him and his relationship to God. And you can imagine, huh, that seems slightly self-involved. Do you know, like, like why, why would I tell my story? What's going on here? And in fact, if you read the confessions again, because I assume you've read it once, but when you read it again, you can feel him constantly asking himself, hey, just why am I writing these confessions? What am I hoping for? Whose attention am I seeking? If Augustine were alive today, he'd have to admit all the time he spends posting on Instagram about his upcoming book on humility. <laughs> but he'd risk it. Confident, not in his own purity, but in the grace of a God who can use his best efforts in spite of the mixed motives. Friends, resting in the love of God doesn't squelch ambition. It fuels it with a different fire. I don't have to strive in order to get God to love me. Rather, because God loves me unconditionally, I am free to take risks, to launch out into the deep. I'm released to aspire the gifts that he's given me in gratitude, caught up in God's mission for the sake of the world. When you've been found, you're free to fail. Thanks very much. All right, so we've got some time for uh, Q&A now with uh, Dr. Smith. So, um, hey. Do you want to actually? Do you just want to call on people as they yeah, raise their hands? Yeah, if I'm and, missing uh, anybody, you catch my attention. Yeah, okay? and, and maybe just speak as loud as you can when you share, and maybe if you don't mind, Dr. I'll Smith, try just to repeating. rephrase the question a little bit too. Yeah, let me see if I uh, can. I go like Pentecostal. <laughs> How much slack do I have? <laughs> I was going to make a Donahue joke, but nobody, none of these kids are going to Donahue. Um. Questions, what do you want to talk about? Yes, sir, in the back. Um, my question is about uh, uh, inju like societal injustice, structural inequality, um, and how it relates to what you're talking about with um, ambition. 
Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so think it. Let's think about ambition as it intersects with structural, systemic inequalities. To take uh, the the most glaring example in our context, racial inequality, structural, systemic racism, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I, I think this is exactly why, in some ways, I would say, um, the the. Is it fair to say that a, a lot of people, especially if you come from sort of Christian context, ambition is a little bit of a bad word? Is that a com I, I grew up, I'm, I'm from the Midwest, so that, that might be a, a regional phenomenon, but I think, I think there's a way in which um, it's actually a certain kind of privilege to be able to imagine that you could speak negatively of ambition. Because what that means is, because you've already got enough of a floor um, that you can basically rest on that. And so uh, um, that, that's why I say, you know, when this is, I, I don't know how much you want to get into this, but the, the language of uppity, right, we know has a specifically racially coded language of saying who can aspire and be ambitious and who can't. And uh, I think, be precisely because Augustine helps us to imagine a kind of sanctified ambition, a good ambition, it gives, uh, it, it's the liberating capacity of that, right? And um, I think that, uh, so is that, is that, am I, am I tracking? Yeah, track, or do you mean aspiring, f like part of the ambition to overcome the structures? Yeah. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, no, I wouldn't, because I, I, I guess, um, right, so I would never, it'd be a little odd to attribute to me given other projects, but yeah, there's, a, there's a sense in which um, ambition here is, I, don't, I guess, I, yeah, I don't think of it as, as inherently tied up with meritocracy, uh, I, I, because I, I would say, Precisely one of the kinds of ambition you would want to unleash is people having uh, um, radical projects of uh, reform and renewal to deal with systems and structures that need to be overturned, right? And not being just status quoism seems to me the the counter to ambition in that in that regard. So, um, and what what's interesting is to see Augustine's own experience is. Um, so on the one hand, he was this ladder climber. Uh, on the other hand, because he was an African who made it to the center of power, he always 
knew that he was sort of on a marginal place. Uh, and so he, I actually think Augustine has great sympathy and empathy and identity with uh, um, these kinds of questions and struggles in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting line of questioning. Yes? Yeah, so, so the, sorry, did somebody say? The, the question is, um, given, so Augustine, uh, you know, mother was African, he's raised in North Africa. Does, in a sense, we, I think it is fair to at least describe him as having a sort of biracial kind of existence and, and identity, although obviously that's an anachronistic term. Um, and what are the possibilities for that today? So this is where, I, I, there's a marvelous little book by a historical theologian named Justo Gonzalez, where he talks about the mestizo Augustine, where he takes this, this notion of the hybridity of the bicultural person who lives between cultures and negotiates between those cultures, but then also feels the kind of crack of not ever feeling entirely at home in either culture because of mutual suspicion almost. And, and Gonzalez, I think in a very, very productive way says, this is a very, very powerful lens to now come back to a giant like Augustine and say, that was the home he grew up in, that was his experience of emigration and return, right? Leaving Africa, going to Italy and Rome, coming back. Um, it's also why you can, uh, Augustine's book, The City of God, is predicated on this key distinction between the two cities, the earthly city and the heavenly city, and how to negotiate those two things. So I absolutely think that kind of cultural, for, for lack of a slightly anachronistic term, racial experience for Augustine is shaping and identifying. And I, I, one of the reasons why I think Augustine is so important to return to today is because it's just, it really deconstructs um, um, a certain kind of Eurocentrism that can be a default of Western theology when you just remember uh, how significantly it's been shaped by this African voice, who, by the way, is only one of many early African voices. Uh, Cyprian was a huge character for him. Um, so it, it, it's, it repays reconsideration. Um, that said, I also don't want to pretend it's not uncomplicated because precisely because Augustine made it all the way to the top of the Roman power structure, it also made him suspicious amongst those who would have felt marginalized too. So it's a, it's a complicated, again, there's no purity in, in that regard and I find it instructive. Yeah, yeah, it's great, great questions. Yes, sir. Um, so if, if race is the thing that we the best that we can hope for in this life. Can you talk about ways that we practice ourselves into grace yeah. and ways that we practice ourselves into grace? Yes, yeah. So, and let me, so if um, the question is, if it is, if grace is sort of the best we can hope for in this life, what does it look like to practice ourselves into that? I, I do want to just 
underscore the first theme, which is that Augustine is known through the history of the church as the doctor of grace. So the heartbeat of Augustine's spirituality is a spirituality of utter dependence on God's gifts and no sense of self-sufficiency. So I just want us to, first of all, feel how counter-modern, and let's be honest, counter-American that is. The, the, the myth of great self-sufficiency that, by the way, seeps its way into North American Protestant Christianity in significant ways. So Augustine is, is, is pushing against that. Interestingly, though, then, um, grace is not some, like, magic. Like, where, oh, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, it turns out the means of grace are available in the body of Christ so that for Augustine, this isn't like, oh, what book do I need to read or what conference do I need to go to to get, like, my grace injection? It's like, sorry, super boring. Go to church. Why? Because not to get a bunch of information, but precisely because the sacraments, let's say for our purposes, Lord's Supper, baptism, and the word, uh, um, these are means of grace, which are like conduits and channels of that kind of renewal that the God gives us. And so there's a deeply communal aspect of Augustine's spirituality as well. The, the, the other thing that I would say is so important in Augustine, um, there's a chapter on friendship in the book that, that the more I think about it, the more I think is actually maybe the hub of it. Because for Augustine, um, there is no Lone Ranger Christianity. Do you know what I mean? Like he just can't imagine. Interestingly, when he was, there's kind of a funky story where he's sort of like forced into the bishop's role. Do you know, this happened a lot in the ancient church. He's like, no, 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 I don't want to do this. And they're like, sorry. You have to do this. Like, you're the smartest guy in town. We've got a bunch of issues. I know you would like to go be a philosopher with tenure and an endowed chair and just write articles. You don't get to do that. We need you to do this. And so when he was compelled to become a bishop, he made one condition. He said, I will not live alone in the bishop's residence. I need to live in monastic community with others. He says, I could not imagine being happy without friends. And I think the integrity and integrality of community to um, the pilgrimage that is the Christian life is another important gift that Augustine offers to us today. Yeah, great. Yes? Um, so as we look at Augustine in sort of our modern day, I think one of the similarities we see is that he has this kind of conception of the mind and body being almost separate. He doesn't explicitly talk about one being great Yeah, this is a great. Please tell me you're a philosophy major. <laughs> okay, okay, fantastic. So the question is, um, Augustine has this mind-body distinction going on in his earlier writings, and is that helpful for us to relate to him today, or does that make it more of a challenge and so on? I do want to complicate this a little bit, and I'm glad you qualified with the earlier writings. So um, when... Interestingly, for Augustine, 
part of his gateway drug to Christianity, I, I need a better metaphor, what's another? <laughs> part of his um, appetizer to Christianity was um, Platonism, uh, a philosophical school of thought called Platonism, which had a very, very strong duality and dualism, one would say, between soul and body, and devalued the body and prioritized the soul. Um, so the early Christian Augustine is still significantly influenced by such Platonism. I actually think as Augustine progresses in his own biblical formation, he actually sort of rolls back that hard platonic dualism. Not that he doesn't still distinguish between soul and body, but he thinks that the person is the union, the essential union of the two. In this sense, I think he's a lot closer to someone like Thomas Aquinas. Um, and uh, in that sense, by the time you get to the City of God, which is published in 410, that's where he says, oh, well, as Christians, our hope is not the immortality of the soul, it's the resurrection of the body. Ergo, the body is as integral to the human person as the mind. And so you get a much more kind of holistic picture that's going on there. Um, interestingly, you're right that in early modernity, Descartes, other figures, they actually went back to Augustine and were influenced by Augustine, but they tended to be influenced by his earlier writings rather than his later writings. And so I feel like they sort of inherited a slightly stunted Augustine on that question. And I think, um, I generally don't think dualism of that strong sort is helpful for us today. And maybe precisely because Augustine doesn't have that strong dualism in his mature thought, gives him a continued relevance. He obviously would still push back on the utter materialism that is the default of naturalism today or something like that, but yeah. Am I in the ballpark of your question? Is yeah, that yeah, helpful? Okay. okay, okay, great, great, yes. Kind of going off of that, um, even if his like, Platonism kind of shifted, yeah. became less of that over time, yeah. most of his audience was still Hellenists who had that kind of framework and background of understanding. Yes. Um, and he like, framed a lot of his arguments so today, with our like existential secular culture, um, people don't really have that same sort of yes. framework to right. understand our concept of mission as Christians. So how do we engage with secular culture and faithfully like conveying yeah. our viewpoint? Yeah, that's a great, great question. The, uh, the question was, so whatever Augustine's ultimate conclusions were philosophically with respect to Platonism, it is still the case that he was communicating to a culture that shared these wider Hellenic assumptions. And so he's trying to speak to his, he's always, we're always doing contextual theology, right? We're always doing contextual. Uh, um, and since people aren't Platonists today, what should we be doing? Is that a fair restatement? So uh, in some ways, that's kind of what I try to do in this book a little bit, which is um, one of the big subtexts of my project is how much um, existentialist philosophers themselves, who have no interest in Platonism whatsoever, were actually directly and indirectly influenced by St. Augustine. So what I do is I grapple with Martin Heidegger, Albert Camus, uh, Gabriel Marcel, uh, other kinds of uh, 20th century philosophers who come from a very, very different school of thought, but nonetheless shape, I think, the kind of water we swim in, the air we breathe culturally and then try to show how Augustine's thought and then hopefully ultimately Christian uh, hope 
speaks to these kind of perennial existential hungers that humans have. So I think we're always, we always need to be engaged in a philosophical conversation that's contemporary, even while we are also uh, oriented to wisdom that is not tied to the present moment, but hopefully to revelation, right? And that, that's, in that sense, Augustine was triangulating, and now we're triangulating in the same way. Yeah, yeah that's a great question. Yes, sir. And, um, so I'm interested in your idea of confession, mm -hmm. the practice of confession, and how could Christians model that as not merely a private, uh, yeah. just yes. God? Because our problem now, one of our problems is um, your whole history is available to be weaponized. Mm. Of a of a secularized culture that selectively inherited, um, selectively inherited judgment without penance, or do you know what I mean? Like we, we selectively still retained uh, orthodoxies of a sort and um, disciplines of a sort, but we don't offer mercy. That's, that's uh, uh, you know, somebody, Ross Douthat, I think, once said, if you thought the religious right was bad, wait till you see the post-religious right. Uh, um, uh, there's, there's, um, sorry, anyway. Uh, there, there's a sense in which, um, so what, how, how can we do this differently? First of all, I, I, you're gonna get me on a slight soapbox here, which is, I, I think, It'd be interesting for, we won't do a show of hands here, but one of the things that astounds me is how many groups gather on a Sunday morning and call themselves a church. There's actually a very loaded point I'm making and saying it that way, but how many groups gather on Sunday mornings and call themselves church who never engage in the discipline and practice of confession when they gather? So this is a huge, huge, one thing you could say is, in fact, it has been lost as a discipline within the church, um, which is why I'm a big advocate for the retrieval and renewal and re, re, uh, um, yeah, resourcing of historic Christian worship precisely because it teaches us the disciplines of confession and assurance of pardon, right? Absolution and mercy. And that, that, that practicing that over and over and over again is a discipline that then has social consequences for how we meet one another, what capacities we have as a society. So I guess probably I, I think one of the things Christians can do is renew their churches to look more like communities that have that kind of practice built in. Um, 
all of you who think that was just an argument for everybody to be Anglican, you can gloat now if you like. <laughs> it wasn't. I'm not an Anglican. I just want, or Episcopal. I'm, I'm Reformed. But these are disciplines and practices that are shared by a wide array of historic uh, uh, traditions and, and denominations. They just tend to not show up at the local big box megastore church. Um, but And then I do, I think there's something about um, showing in public what it looks like to extend mercy. I, I think mercy is very, very scandalous today. I still remember, Deanna and I heard um, uh, Brian Steven on that, Stevenson, you know, of Just Mercy uh, on NPR a few weeks ago. We, we had heard him years ago in DC. We're so moved, just weeping, listening to his work. But one of the things that struck me was, um, Brian Stevenson's willingness to tell stories about, obviously this is somebody who's an absolute champion for overcoming systemic racism and racial injustice, and yet his willingness to also tell a story that included forgiveness and reconciliation is a very, very significant outlier in the current contemporary conversation. And I think you, you just have to say that's attributable to his, and it's not like, that's not like saying, oh, you don't have to worry about justice. It's never, ever about that. But just holding out the possibility of forgiveness is, is an incredible testimony about imagining a different sort of world. And I think we have to look for, I, I mean, that we have a world in which there's a movie about Brian Stevenson and his work is maybe some small signal of that possibility. Yeah, it's an important question. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Augustine being honest about these things is because now I feel like, oh, you know me. You know me. Did you, did you publish this book for God or for Jamie? Yes. Um, uh, yeah, and it's, and, and uh, could I have saved myself the risk of saying, oh, you just did this to, you know, get attention. Yes, I could have said that, but then I also feel like I wouldn't have been answering a call in my life to, to do this. And, and in some ways, if, if the book helps someone in spite of me, that will be the case. And um, I have just found it so liberating to be honest about the conflict and the mixed upness of my heart. Um, rather than um, either the hubris of imagining I've achieved purity or the shame of an incessant guilt that doesn't think God already knows and has already forgiven me, right? It's, it's trying to, between hubris and shame, 
is the grace of God who, who gives me permission every week to come to him and say, I have followed too much the devices and desires of my own heart. You know, that, that kind of reality. And so um, I, I, I think, I hope, my sincere hope is that other people find that message of the grace in the mess as gift, as the liberating gift that it is. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I wonder, is anybody falling outside my purview that I'm at? Yes. Give me like all the Democratic candidates last night. Oh! <laughs> yes. sound slightly coy and I don't mean it exclusively in the way I'm going to say but my first thought is get married <laughs> now here's why <laughs> so uh, um, uh, and I don't I don't that's what I'm saying the, the, but I'll, I'll just say like one discipline is um, I think of marriage primarily as a powerful instantiation of friendship so another way we'd be saying this is get yourself friends who won't put up with your BS that's, that's my wife, who's basically like, so what? Like, whatever. Uh, um, and it's just this, like, it's this reality check. So there's something about um, being part of a community where we love each other enough to call each other on our idolatrous predilections to self-absorption. Um, the, there are, I do think that there are other disciplines worth thinking about in terms of, uh, maybe the flip side of this is, okay, what are the rhythms and rituals, the cultural liturgies that prime us to become these attention-seeking machines? Because I don't, I, I do think, yes, on the one hand, the human heart is an idol factory, and this is, a, we're all prone to this. On the other hand, let's not pretend that different cultural moments and different cultural configurations and systems don't like fan this flame into you know a, a, a burning man. Uh, and in that sense, I do think it's worth asking like what what would be the disciplines and habits for my sort of online social media life such that I know I'm not saying don't be there. I'm just saying. What are the checks and balances I could create for myself so that I know that I'm not looking for all my affirmation and validation digitally? Just to take one example, and again, I'm really not picking on social, I'm, I'm on Twitter unashamedly. But I, one of the things I, I think it comes down to is, um, what does it look like for us to practice reticence? with respect to our online worlds, so that um, keep secret, <laughs> that sounds bad. What I mean is, every time you think you need to say something on Twitter for attention, just talk to a friend about that thing and see if it doesn't turn into a different kind of deepening experience. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, it's, it's just about looking for ways, and again, I'm not saying we can't participate in these spaces, but the question is, is that my ultimate space? 
or is it just another space for me? And relativizing it and cultivating these other practices. I, I just think embodied face-to-face -face relationships go a long way to sort of mitigating the performance dynamic of that. Um, you're asking a really good question. I'm giving a really lame answer because I'm thinking off the top of my head. But there's, there's, th those are um, at least a start. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I know I'm gonna think of another one in a second. Maybe a follow-up question. Yeah. Um, Do you have ideas, by the way? <laughs> maybe it's a follow-up. Uh, so I guess I'm a pastor or bishop. Yes. And uh, if you were, it's always a hard question, but if you were here with us tonight. Mm. and trying to help us navigate the distinction or the difference between um, adulation, as you talked about, mm. and popularity and real friendship, and real authentically being known in the community for college students today. What kind of practical advice do you think you would give to navigate that? Mm. Um, so the question is, what, what, would be, what would be Augustine's distinction between, say, adulation and popularity versus true friendship, which is a great question. And um, I think Augustine would say two things. First of all, you know it's true friendship when you don't feel any risk in being vulnerable mm -hmm. with the deepest part of who you are. Right, the, the adulation and attention and popularity is usually predicated on the commodity of curating yourself to be liked. And I think we all know that there are, that the, the cost of doing that is actually submerging parts of who you are. True friendship is a relationship in which you can be fully you with all your, what was that, hot mess express kind of, you know, of who you are. And no one is, your friend is not shocked or surprised or disgusted or, you know, they don't retreat because they're a friend. Um, so vulnerability. Deep, deep vulnerability as and yet safety. The second thing is friendship will not always look like affirmation. Let me explain. Friendship will not always look like um, saying good job. Because sometimes you're not doing a good job. Sometimes I'm not. And the true friend is not an enabler. The true friend is the person who actually nudges you, pushes you, comes alongside you, alongside you, and is actually nudging you towards your own good. And sometimes that means trying to push you away from the bad decisions that you're making on your own. So, so Augustine always thinks it's not just a question of what should I look like, look for in a good friend? What does it look like for me to be a good friend? Um, those, those are, I think, a couple of the sort of key characteristics. And, and, and by the way, um, in some ways, friendship is a dying art. And um, I think uh, 
in, a, in an age of increased social isolation and an epidemic of loneliness, friendship will probably be the portal by which people taste a grace that they've never ever seen before. And to be communities of friendship is about as close as we could get to being outposts of the coming kingdom uh, in the meantime. Thanks everybody. for being with us. Um, Y'all, this has been a wonderful night. Thank you so much again for coming out for all the sacrifices that were made and the travel conditions that uh, y'all braved to be here. Uh, I, it's a rare night when you can wear a blazer and bean boots at the same time, uh, but, but a good night. So, I also, I forgot to mention this earlier, but I'd also like to thank Josh Shatro and Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Raleigh specifically, um, who are hosting Dr. Smith this weekend and who made it possible uh, for him to be in Chapel Hill tonight since he's going to be uh, with him this weekend. So thank you, Josh, and thank you, Holy Trinity. I think I was taking furious notes uh, during the talk, so there's a lot here to chew on, um, a lot to, for all of us to take away. Um, I think the quote that struck me the most that I want to reflect on tonight was, what if we were wired not for the adulation of many, but for the love of one? I think that's a, just a great... Augustinian thought to, to chew on as we go forward from here tonight. Um, Dr. Smith also mentioned that we can't achieve purity in this. We'll never be perfectly pure. pure. Uh, and so at the risk of heaping adulation on one individual, I do want to draw attention uh, to Amber Younger in the back. <laughs> so y'all, it's Many of you know Amber, all, pretty much all the students do. For those of you who don't know Amber, Amber is our wonderful director of Christian Life. She is, she does everything. Uh, she, she keeps the study center afloat. And today is her birthday. So, so really, we, we've loved having you, Dr. Smith, but it was really just a cover awesome. to, to, to throw a birthday party. So uh, I, th I think to close tonight, again, just to, to thank everyone, drive safe on the way home. But I think it'd be great to close by saying happy birthday to Amber. So we'll start. Three, two, one. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Amber. Happy birthday to you. Drive safe.